Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, while the United States and Russia were involved in these negotiations, these conversations, which eventually led to the dismantling of what Ronald Reagan had called the evil empire, the Soviet Union, there was an interesting uh, term that emerged. What was the world going to look like after the, the two superpowers that had polarized the world into two different camps, after one of those superpowers was gone, uh, how would things work? And in the course of that conversation, there was a term that people started using to describe it. Uh, it would be a new world order, a new world order. I know when you hear that term, if you're like me, you probably think of uh, George Bush, the first George Bush uh, president during that period. But he wasn't actually the one who coined the term. The first person to start talking about a new world order was the Soviet premier, Mikhail Gorbachev, in the late 80s. And eventually uh, that term picked up. It it caught on. Uh, George Bush gave his famous speech about the new world order on September 11th. 1990, interestingly. And there was a, 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 an outbreaking of hope. Everything was going to change. Uh, for those of you who were alive then, you remember the, the optimism that was suddenly unleashed at that moment. Um, it was kind of crazy to look back. Francis Fukuyama wrote a book about the end of history. We had reached the end of history now that these events had taken place. Uh, won't tax your pop music knowledge too much, but there was an obscure British band back then, Jesus Jones, that sang a song called Right Here, Right Now, with a lyric that talked about watching the world wake up from history, as if the Cold War, as if all the wars of the 20th century had been just a dream. And now we were waking up into this wonderful new reality. Obviously, that optimism did not last very long. And uh, now when people talk about the New World Order, uh, if they bring that up in everyday conversation, you can be pretty sure they mean it in a bad way. Uh, All of that hope was quickly dissipated. But the point is that it's kind of surprising that it could have broken out at all. It's strange to think that with the knowledge of the world that people had by then, having endured so much, it was still possible to think that that changes in political circumstances were going to alter everything, that suddenly there would be truly a new world order in place. Things were going to work differently from now on. The world was going to be a better place from now on. I think the fact that we ever could have dreamed such a thing, it says something, right? It suggests something that we could even have such notions. It suggests that deep down, we all long for a new world order. We all have this sense that hope should break out, that things should change, that the world should be different. And connected to that is a second thing, that when we hope that way, we know that for the world to be made new, there would have to be a new order. There has to be order. There needs to be a new government, a new rule, a new power in order to make it so in order for things to change 
forever. There would need to be not only a new world, but a new order to that world. That longing is the same longing that we express every Sunday when we pray, Thy kingdom come. We long for a new reality and a new order to ensure that that reality is the final reality, that that's the way the world will change for good. And we spent the last five weeks looking at just two chapters in the Gospel of Luke, and now we're going to spend the next ten weeks looking at just two chapters in Luke's other book, which is the book of Acts. Uh, The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are sort of a one-two punch, two volumes in the same history by the same author. In the first series that we just finished, we were looking at and eating with Jesus uh, the way that a culture of grace is created by the gospel. And now in this new series, Thy Kingdom Come, we're going to look at the new order that that culture of grace creates. The new order that emerges when the gospel goes to work in our lives. Jesus came into this world to establish a kingdom order. To establish a kingdom order. And in our text, uh, the first five verses of Acts chapter 1, we get to see the way Jesus spoke about these things. We get to ask ourselves the question, what is Jesus talking about? There's a a period of time between the resurrection and the ascension, 40 days, where Jesus spends uh, time speaking to his disciples, and Luke tells us what that was all about. If you think about it, if you had 40 days to download all the information that you wanted to give to the people around you, just 40 days, what would you talk about? Like, would it be enough time to to pass it all down, to communicate everything? Uh, What would the focus be? If you couldn't fit in everything, like, what would you you, you zoom in on and really emphasize? Luke's going to tell us how Jesus made that choice. So this is Acts 1, the first five verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what was Jesus talking about? There are a couple of observations to make here. First of all, um, you may already know this, but but there's a name that's mentioned right at the beginning of our text, O Theophilus, who's being addressed. The reader is being addressed. Uh, Theophilus uh, means one who loves God. Theos is God and, and Philo is love, you know, so one who loves God is being addressed. This may have been a particular person. This was like his name or his nickname because he was so devout. It may have been Luke's way, uh, literarily, of of referring to the reader in general, those who love God. I've written these books for you. But he's directly addressing the reader here and picking up the story from where he left it in his gospel. 
he refers to the first book, which is the Gospel of Luke, where he told these stories. And, and if you go back to Luke chapter 24, you'll see that right at the end of Luke 24, uh, we get essentially the same things that we're going to be told in our text here. You get um, how Jesus spent the time between the resurrection and the ascension, what he talked about, the promise of the Holy Spirit, is also referenced there, and then it ends with the ascension. So when you picture the two books of Luke and Acts, you might think there's a little bit of narrative overlap, a little handoff that's going on. You're getting uh, right at the beginning here almost the, the previews of what happened in the last episode. You know, Luke is just bringing you up to remember how I told you about that little period of time, just refreshing your memory here before we go further. What Jesus talks about, what he's speaking about during this period Luke says, is the kingdom of God. He's speaking about the kingdom of God. That's how Luke summarizes all of the teaching that took place during that period. All of the different things that Jesus addressed get summed up under that heading, the kingdom of God. Luke doesn't say talking about the gospel, though he was. He doesn't say talking about the church, though no doubt he was. He says talking about the kingdom. The kingdom is the heading that all of that other stuff fits under, and that's significance. The kingdom should be the word, that it should be the kingdom of God that Jesus is focused on because Jesus came to establish a kingdom order. Despite what you may have heard, Jesus did not come into the world so that you could escape out of the world. Jesus came into the world to remake the world. The gospel is about individual salvation, but it is about more than individual salvation. Jesus, in 1 John 4, is described as the Savior of the world. And we hear that and have a tendency to think, well, what it means is the Savior of all the people in the world. Or some of us say all the people in the world who make the right choices. But I think John has in mind something bigger than that, something more cosmic than that Jesus is, not might be, or wanted to be, or was hoping he could have been, but Jesus is the Savior of the world, the, the, the whole order of creation, all of it. He is the Savior of the world. It's something big. A new world order means a new government. It means a new set of rules. It means a new power. And if Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, then for most of us, what that means is we need to radically expand our understanding of what Jesus came here to do. He came here to do much more than we typically imagine. Now, the disciples, they were talking about the kingdom too. Right? They would ask Jesus about the kingdom as well because they had the Old Testament kingdom in mind. What they didn't realize, though, was the nature of that kingdom, that the Old Testament kingdom was a type and a shadow of the kingdom of God that Jesus was speaking of. Famously, the disciples, they're always asking, like, like uh, Jesus, are you now going to, to start the kingdom? You'll see in our text in verse 6 of Acts 1, they ask this question again. Is it now time to begin the work you actually came here to do? And we see the disciples asking these questions, and we chuckle at their naivete. Ah, oh, these silly disciples. 
They thought Jesus was coming to overthrow the Roman emperor, but he was coming to do something very different from that. They just don't get it because they expected a political kingdom on the model of the Old Testament kingdom of Israel. It's interesting that they still longed for that, that Old Testament kingdom. The Old Testament sees God's people becoming organized as a kingdom. The story of the Old Testament is about the establishment of that kingdom. That kingdom governs the people of God. But it does more than govern them. It also speaks to their identity as a people. And it speaks to their chosenness, the, the favor of God upon them. All of that is subsumed in that idea of the kingdom. And when they lose that kingdom, when it falls, that comes as a deep, profound, psychic blow. It's not just that the, 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 the guys in charge have changed. The government has changed it a little bit. Something has happened to us. We've lost something. So the, these men who never lived in that kingdom long to see it restored by Jesus. It says something about the power of that idea of the kingdom, what it meant to people, that even Christ's disciples longed to see it restored, but they didn't realize. But in the same way that the author of Hebrews talks about the Levitical order, the religious order of the Old Testament, and how that was a type and shadow of a better reality to come, that the kingdom functions in a similar way as well. That the Old Testament kingdom was not the be-all and end-all. It wasn't the thing we need to get back to. Like if we, You'll know you live in a golden age when the political kingdom of Israel is reestablished. No. That was a type and shadow too. That too pointed to something better on the horizon, something that was still to come. But in defense of the disciples, at least they knew that Jesus had come to do something more than change their hearts. At least they understood, even if they didn't get it, at least they understood that the work of the Messiah is cosmic, that it's huge in scope, that it's not just, just private and secret, that it's big and all-encompassing. They understood that Jesus had come to establish some kind of a kingdom, and indeed, the kingdom of God is a kingdom, like kingdoms that went before it. Like, like the Old Testament kingdom, Christ's kingdom governs his people. It also signifies their identity. It signals their chosenness, their favor in the eyes of God. Well, what is the kingdom of God exactly? It's kind of a mysterious term. It gets used a lot. You see Jesus tell parables about the kingdom, these references to the kingdom. What you don't really get is a definition of the kingdom. Jesus doesn't pause and say, and by the way, I know I keep using this, this word, and you're probably wondering what I mean by it. Let me explain. Uh, you don't get that exactly. But uh, fortunately, when there are questions like this, burning questions that, that we can't seem to answer, this is where the Westminster Confession comes to our aid, because the Westminster Divines grappled with this question. And ask themselves, what is Jesus talking about when he talks about the kingdom of God? What should we understand? And so, in the Westminster Confession, chapter 25, section 2, you read these words. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children, 
It is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So the kingdom is the visible church. The kingdom of God is the visible church. That feels like a letdown. It sounded so mysterious and so interesting that Jesus had come to establish a kingdom. It turns out, oh, no, it's just the church. Oh. But if you react that way to the revelation, you have to understand what's happening here is not that the idea of the kingdom is being diminished. You just need to increase your idea of the church. You need to have a higher view of the church. The church, a new government, a new rule, a new power on earth which Christ came to establish this visible church is the kingdom of God. It's the order Jesus established, and the order that Jesus established is a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. In the last two verses of our text, you see that that as Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God, he speaks also about something else, about waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You should wait. You should wait here in Jerusalem. Don't stray. Don't leave. Wait here until the Holy Spirit that has been promised comes to you. If you flip back to Luke 24, you'll read these words, the way it's described, this need to wait. They should wait until you are clothed with power from on high. That's the significance of the Holy Spirit. Power from on high will clothe you. The new kingdom order possesses a new power. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. This kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, but when you hear that, don't think spiritual versus physical. Don't think, oh, it's not a physical kingdom. It's not a a this world kingdom. It's not tangible. It's not real in that way. It's, it's ephemeral, it's spiritual, it's sort of an idea, it's, it's a thing in the heart. That's not the opposition to think here. When, when, when I say this is a spiritual kingdom, I don't mean not a physical kingdom. I mean it is not a kingdom whose power comes from this world. It is a kingdom whose power comes from beyond this world. The power of the Holy Spirit, power from on high. And that power is all around you. That power is all around you. The power of the Holy Spirit is how we have God's word before us. The Holy Spirit inspiring human authors to inscripturate the very word of God. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit also illuminates that word when we read it in faith. It's by the guidance of the Spirit that we're able to understand. The Holy Spirit's power is what regenerates sinners, replacing hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. The power of the Spirit is what works faith in us. The power of the Spirit is also what sanctifies us, what, what, what makes us conformed more and more to the image of Christ over time. The power of the Spirit through the sacraments, is a sign and seal of God's covenant of grace. How can you tell when the Holy Spirit is working? How can we tell? In the 20th century, 
a new way of answering that question emerged. People said to themselves, the only way you can know that the Holy Spirit is at work is if the New Testament sign gifts are suddenly revived. If you start seeing people speaking in strange tongues, uh, having tongues of fire over their heads, if they start healing the sick and, and bringing back the dead, then you'll know the Holy Spirit is at work in the church. And if you don't see those things, then he's not. Which sounds really impressive, but I would argue this is actually a really like narrow and impoverished view of the work of the Holy Spirit and what signifies the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's a way of thinking about the Holy Spirit that can only take root, only find traction once we've decided that all of the other work of the Holy Spirit that the Bible describes is actually our work instead. Once we've decided that we are saved by our own judgment, we're saved by the choices that we make, that we are sanctified by our willpower. Once we've decided that and taken those things away from the Holy Spirit, then the only way to see him at work is in these extraordinary circumstances. But if we go back to Scripture and ask ourselves, what does the Spirit do? What does the power of the Spirit do? result in, then we discover we are surrounded by signs of the work of the Spirit. Is anyone here a believer? Does anyone here have faith in the improbable gospel of Jesus Christ? Does anyone here read from this book and have the word of God speak to them? Then you're surrounded by the Holy Spirit. Does anyone here have faith in the name of Christ? Is anyone's faith hope in Christ alone, then we are surrounded by the work of the Holy Spirit because it is only by that power that you see the evidence of those things. If there was no Holy Spirit, there would be no church because everything, everything that the church relies on for its existence is performed by the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus spoke about the kingdom, he was speaking of an old idea made new. He was revealing the spiritual reality behind the Old Testament symbol of the kingdom. When he promised the spirit, he was putting his finger on the thing that made this kingdom different than every kingdom that went before it. He was pointing to the thing that made this not a kingdom, but the kingdom, the spirit the gift of the Holy Spirit promised by the Father. Wait here until the Spirit descends, until you are clothed in power from on high. They needed the power of the Spirit to go forward, and you need it too. You need this spiritual order. You need the visible church. You need the church. Luke says he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Jesus says, stay and wait. Don't rush out. Don't, don't go out. Don't charge hell with a squirt gun. Stay and wait. Stay and wait till the power descends. You need to wait because the Spirit is essential. And you need to stay because this is where the Spirit is. 
There's a significance to his words. It's why the Westminster Confession, if you picked up on this earlier, says that there is no salvation outside the church ordinarily. Ordinarily, God can do anything God wants to do, but ordinarily, this is where you find salvation. This is where you come to faith. This is where your faith is strengthened because this is where the gift of the Spirit operates. The ministry of word and sacraments. This is the ordinary means the Holy Spirit uses to instill faith in us and to nurture, strengthen the faith that has been given to us. Which is why we need the visible church. I say visible here on purpose because there are actually two uh, churches described in the confession, the visible and the invisible. The visible church is everyone who proclaims the true religion, everyone whose hope is in Christ. No matter what denomination, no matter uh, where they're located physically, it's not one nation, it's not one tribe, it is everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. That is the visible church and their children. But the invisible church speaks to that other reality of the, the, the electing work of God, the electing work of God. And, and I would say evangelicals generally have a tendency to think that what I need is not the visible church, it is the invisible church. It doesn't matter like where I go on Sunday, what matters is that I believe what I ought to believe, that, that things are right in my heart. All that matters is what's happening between me and Jesus. All that matters is what's in here. But Jesus is speaking to his disciples about establishing an order that includes them all. He is instituting an order, a government, a rule that is larger than just individual disciples. So that, yes, it matters what's in your heart. It also matters where your body is, too. It matters where you're located, where you are, where you show up, and what you do. It all matters. You need the church because you need the Spirit, and the Spirit has been given in the context of the church. A few weeks ago, I, I mentioned uh, favorite Christmas movies in the Bertrand household, uh, Elf and Die Hard, but uh, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, chime in with what is, of course, the best Christ Christmas movie of all time, It's a Wonderful Life, the, the classic that uh, in the Bertrand household we're forced to watch over and over again the Christmas season. Um, you watch something often enough and you actually stop knowing what it's about. You're just familiar with all the pieces, and, and that's one of those movies I've seen so often that I can jump in at any moment and know what's happening, and yet somehow I have a hard time with the big picture and seeing what the big picture is. But if you think about that, that story, this guy, George Bailey, who his whole life has, has dreamt of getting away. He lives in Bedford Falls, but he's too big for Bedford Falls. He has ambition. He has dreams. He's going to be a world traveler. He's going to be a man of, of sophisticated taste and distinction. And yet circumstances always foil those ambitions. And he finds himself essentially trapped in this little town. He, he serves that town. He sacrifices for that town, but he never loses the dream. He never loses that hope that one day uh, his responsibilities will be taken care of. He can entrust his duties to someone else, and he can finally go out and be who he was meant to be. He can find like that, that special identity that he always felt called to. 
Of course, that's not the way it works. Uh, you know the story. He is always kind of at, on his, uh, like at the end of his rope. Everything is always a little bit uh, hectic in his life, and then things take a, a terrible turn, and, and Mr. Potter, the, the evil robber baron who runs the town, threatens to close the savings and loan and throw George in jail for misconduct, and, and it's Christmas time. But then people gather around all over the town. They come from everywhere, and they put a little bit of money in the collection plate, and eventually he's got all the money he needs to make good on what was lost, and the moral of the story is it's good to have friends. And it's, it's good to have friends. It turns out this guy who thought that, that his life was somewhere else, he thought that his value would be found in, in going to some other place. It turns out it's, it's right here in Bedford Falls. This is what he was called to. This is where his wealth is located. His wealth is not in his bank account. His wealth is in people, in the people that he has served. And now they come to his side and serve him. I think for a lot of us, Christ's spiritual kingdom, the church, is a lot like Bedford Falls. We show up because we have to. It's our duty. We serve because that's what we're supposed to do. But we also have dreams. We also have ideas about other places that we could be, other things we could be doing, things maybe that, that are more um, true to who we are as individuals. We don't think much these days of finding our identity in the group, especially if it's a group we don't get to select the members of. And yet, I would suggest to you that when it comes to the church, many of us are in the same position as George Bailey, not recognizing where our wealth is found, not recognizing where the power we need is found. We look elsewhere, we search elsewhere, but what we struggle to see is that this is where the power of Christ is felt. What I mean is we dream of a new order without recognizing we are already living in it. We dream of a new government, a new rule, a new power without seeing that we're already in its midst, that it is already here among us. Piously, we say to ourselves, my treasure is in heaven, which is true. But there's also a sense in which your treasure is here as well. That God has brought that treasure down in the form of the Spirit. Father promised the Spirit, and the Spirit came, and everything we have, we have because of the Spirit. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come, we pray, imagining some far-off reality over the edge of, of history and time, your kingdom will come. But God hears our prayer. We pray thy kingdom come, God hears, and his kingdom comes and has come and is coming and surrounds you. You're not far from the kingdom. In fact, it's here. It is here. The kingdom of God is here and the power of God is real. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. 
We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.